From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. All season long, we've heard from coaches and players from men's basketball, and there has been one unifying theme throughout, the desire to return to the NCAA tournament and make a splash on the biggest stage in college basketball. Well, that opportunity is officially here for Mike White's squad, who will begin their run as a four seed, taking on 13th seed East Tennessee State in Orlando on Thursday. In preparation for this final step of the season, Today we've got an intriguing profile in jack-of-all-trades Canyon Barry, as well as a deep dive in the tournament, along with some football tidbits gleaned during a roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. But first, he came here with a name that many recognize, but a game that confounded most. Now that he's nearing the finish line of his college playing days, we sat down with senior Canyon Barry to talk about his fascinating journey, beginning with how gratifying it is for him to be competing in March Madness for the first time. Uh, I think it's a big accomplishment working four years to try to make it and finally uh, having that dream come true has been great. Uh, I love being able to make it with these guys and help Florida get back to the tournament and now our focus is just winning games. So um, anything can happen in March and kind of have the why not us mindset and try to go out there and make a run. We'll get back to basketball in a second, but I want to talk about where you grew up and that process for you. So can you talk about Colorado Springs and the impact that that had on you? Yeah, you know, I think Colorado Springs is a great little town. Um, obviously, there's a lot of military personnel there just with a lot of the Air Force bases, Fort Carson, Peterson, Air Force Academy. Um, so there's a lot of military personnel, but, you know, it's a very active town. I think Colorado is kind of known for being an active state, a lot of hiking, biking, mm-hmm. trails, climbing. You know, the old joke is, you know, you're in Colorado when the bike on top of the car costs more than the car. So uh, <laughs> just growing up there, it was nice to be able to be outside and play a bunch of sports and basketball, tennis, baseball, volleyball, and just growing up with my family and friends uh, really enjoy Colorado. How'd you guys end up in Colorado Springs? Why was that the destination? Well, my dad chased after my mom out there. Uh, at the time, my mom was working for USA Basketball, kind of doing the director of basketball operations there for the women's team and um, went to a bunch of Olympics. So my dad met her and fell in love and uprooted himself and moved out there to chase after. So uh, once he got there and they got married, they loved it and stayed there, decided to raise a family. So you mentioned your dad and your mom, both very heavily involved in basketball. Can you talk about their influence on you getting into the sport and when you first took to it yourself? It's one of those things where I don't really remember the first time, you know, I decided to play basketball or learn basketball. Just Mm -hmm. growing up in a basketball family, you're just always around the game, traveling to events with my dad, going to, you know, all-star games and retired players events association and just being on the road and being surrounded by the game of basketball and their knowledge. I think I kind of just was naturally drawn to it. Um, They never forced me to play or, um, you know, made me practice or made me go shoot hoops in the driveway. It was one of those things where when you're exposed to it at a a young age, I think you just become attracted to it and you don't think about it as, oh, yeah, my parents are great basketball players. You just think of it as, oh, basketball is really fun. I want to keep playing it. So they both bring a little bit of different flavor to the table with their own careers and their experiences. In what ways did each of them impact your basketball development? Well, from a young age, my mom kind of took over, teaching me a lot of the basics, the fundamentals, doing a lot of dribbling drills, passing drills. She actually runs a uh, a little basketball camp over the summer every week 
called Wednesday Workouts. So she does three sessions for three different age groups. And just growing up around her, I would go early in the morning with her and help her set up and then just do all the workouts in all three age groups. So she was instrumental in my development from a younger age. And obviously, I think the game changed a little bit since my dad had played. So he never grew up doing two ball ball handling drills Mm -hmm. or tennis ball ball handling drills or any of that more current stuff. So um, she kind of helped me with that. And then as I got older and more experienced and could kind of get into an area where I was able to refine my game a little more, like jab step series and footwork, coming off screens, how to read ball screens, that kind of stuff. That's really where my dad took over. And obviously with the free throws too, he taught me those. So uh, I think I kind of owe my my game to a mix of both parents, definitely my mom growing up. And then the older I got, my dad kind of took over more. You mentioned the free throws. Let's talk about that now. We'll get it over with. I know you get asked about it a million times. But uh, can you just talk about when it occurred to you that 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 was the direction you wanted to, to take your game? Yeah, from a young age, I I knew the form. I had practiced the underhand free throw form in the driveway. And to me, I kind of always knew I was going to switch because I'm kind of a math science brain. And, Mm -hmm. you know, logic would dictate if you had one of the greatest free throw shooters of all time as your own personal free throw coach, why would you not at least make an attempt? And um, the older I got, I realized just how soft a shot it was. Obviously, there's less moving parts. It's more repeatable motion. So I think it just made sense to my math and science brain. And then obviously I had the best teacher possible and easy access to him. Um, So I just kind of decided to make the switch junior year after my hands were big enough. Um, You kind of have to have slightly larger hands to be able to get over the top of the ball a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That kind of happened after I hit my growth spurt and just rolled with it from there. When I asked you about this for a story earlier this year, you talked about some of the the fun ribbing that you got. And you said one thing in particular, which I want to hear that story again. I think it was the first time you did it. And one of the things that they chanted at you when you were missing free throws. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, it was a, I think it was a high school playoff game. I can't remember. It might have been before the playoffs or something. But we traveled to school. And, you know, I was playing pretty well and made a bunch of free throws. And then early in the second half, I got fouled. And I uh, made the first one and missed the second one. And I was running back down the court. The whole opposing student section started chanting, you're adopted. <laughs> uh, so I thought they that was, that was the... pretty funny. Yeah, exactly. Okay, get exactly. It so <laughs> I thought I had to give him some props for that one. That was pretty clever. Throughout the course of this year, going to some places that have really rabid student sections, has anybody done anything to, to add to the, the pantheon there of legendary ribs on you? Um, not really. You know, I've, I've kind of heard it all at this point, <laughs> and it's, it's honestly just me being more mad at myself when I miss one than, um, you know, the students distracting me or causing me to miss. So I've been able to shoot a good percentage this year, which I've been happy about. And you were on that long run. I think it was at 35, 36 in a row at one point up oh, until recently. Was it in the 40s? Was it in the now? 40s? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Couldn't okay. We'll give you the 40s. Cheap changing me over here. <laughs> when you get to that level when you're shooting the ball that well, does the motion change the action of it? I mean, is it still the mental part of it you're having to manage, or does the motion take some of the other aspects out of the challenge? One of the most important things with free throws is just repetition and doing the same thing every time. I think uh, you see some people who have the same routine, but they don't go about it in the same way every time. I think the art of the free throw is, is such that it's so important that you approach it the same way every time where you know, you're know you holding the ball in the same spot every time. You're mm-hmm. taking the same amount of breaths. You're going through the same timing on your routine. So you know I don't think anything changes when you're on a streak, whether you missed 10 in a row or if you made 100 in a row. You know That's the most important thing about the free throw is that it doesn't change. You know, it's a set distance, set ball. Um, you know, no one's blocking your shot, and it's just you and the, and the basket, and you should you know, be able to convert it at a high rate. When we did the story about you earlier this year, I asked all your teammates about it and with their first reaction. They obviously they had some, you know, some stunned looks, and they laughed about it. 
has that changed at all over the course this year? Has anybody become more receptive to it? Have people reached out to you asking for pointers because of how successful you've been? I mean, it's funny. You know, when you first go to a new place and the free throw is new and they're not experienced to it or exposed to it, they, like you said, kind of gawk at it when mm-hmm. they first see it. But at this point in the season, everyone is um, accustomed to it. So, you know, they don't think twice when they see me shooting it. But, you know, I've given a couple of them pointers. I haven't convinced any of them to switch. But, you know, that's something I actually am looking forward to after the season is maybe trying to put on a little underhand free throw clinic or kind of be a free throw coach and, you know, go travel around to – hopefully pro teams or, you know, really anywhere that is willing to listen and try to get the underhand free throw more popular. I think it's a great option for people who aren't shooting a good percentage. Um, I think if you're, you know, 75 or above, there's no reason to switch. You should just keep practicing your overhand and try to get to 80. But, you know, if you're below 70% in the 60s, 50s, I think it's a great option. At least give it a try. When it seems like now the, the, the New York Life commercials with your dad, and it's, it's sort of bringing it back. Do you feel pride in the sense that you've sort of brought this to the forefront? You sort of brought the Barry name back into the, the front of people's consciousness. Um, yeah, I think it's nice. It's kind of nice to be able to pay tribute to my dad and honor his great career and you know his style of free throw shooting. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is just making as many free throws <laughs> as possible. Um, you know, I just cringe when you see big time NBA teams have players that they can't play at the end of the game because they risk you know getting fouled and sure. not being able to convert at the line. So I think it's just been great that it's gotten the publicity it has and um, hopefully continues to spread. All four of your half-brothers were very heavily involved in basketball, but there's a big age gap between you guys. So I'm curious what impact and influence they had on you despite being so far apart. Yeah, I mean, obviously we grew up where I was pretty much an only child just because my brothers, like you said, were so much older and had careers and mm-hmm. families and you know lived in areas all across the country. But again, it's just nice to have that wealth of basketball knowledge accessible to you and they're a little bit more current than my dad was or my mom was. And They wear longer shorts. They do wear longer <laughs> shorts, that's for sure. And, you know, have been through the same things that I went through with recruiting and mm-hmm. um, now hopefully uh, after the season just trying to get a career and find places to play and uh, they'll be a huge asset when, you know, when that time comes. You had a really successful career at College of Charleston before you came to Florida. When you look back on that, what do you take away from your time there? Uh, you know, I can't say anything negative about College of Charleston. I loved my undergrad school. Um, the people were great. The coaching staff was great with uh, Coach Grant. And then, you know, there's the city of Charleston is incredible. Beaches, southern hospitality, great food. So I um, was blessed to get a nice degree there with physics and uh, kind of led me here. And, you know, I wish Charleston would have made the tournament this year. But congrats to them for making the NIT. And hopefully they make a run there. When you made the decision to come to Florida, what went into that decision? Why was it important for you to move on both athletically and academically? Yeah, that was definitely one of the hardest decisions in my life just because I loved the school so much. I had so much respect for the coaching staff, loved my teammates. So uh, it was long deliberated over. But at the end of the day, I just decided it was important for me to be able to start a master's degree, you know, while someone else was paying for it. Mm -hmm. I think that's always um, good. Something you should take advantage of if at all possible. Um, I knew I wanted to do engineering, and I was really interested in nuclear. Uh, and obviously, University of Florida has a great nuclear engineering program with you know nuclear reactors on campus. And when I came here and met with the staff, not only basketball-wise but academic-wise, I just think it it clicked really well, and um, it was a great fit for me. And then basketball-wise, just trying to get more exposure. Um, you know, the CA is a great league, but uh, the SEC is just a high major basketball league. You play against great competition night in, night out, and uh, the exposure level has been great. You talk about the academic side of it. I think a lot of people just pay lip service to it because it's part of the deal. But for you, it's obviously a a big, big aspect. So do you feel pride in that you're bringing attention to the student part of student-athlete? Being able to get a good education um, and succeed on the court and in the classroom, I think, has just been a blessing. 
Um, you know, I really have to thank my mom for that, for just instilling in me the importance of education, knowing that you, the basketball only bounces for so long. Um, so, you know, after it stops bouncing, I think it's important to have something to fall back on. And I've been blessed and fortunate enough to have great teachers and professors and have two nice degrees, hopefully when I'm finished, that will uh, carry me far in life. I imagine your mom is a big part of this, but even scheduling this interview is difficult because of your schedule with basketball and with classes and labs, et cetera. How do you balance that when you have such a heavy workload compared to most of your teammates? Uh, I think it's just time management. Um, growing up from a young age, playing so many sports, you kind of learn how to balance the scales and deal with having to go straight from class to practice to homework to eat to dinner to bed. So just doing work whenever you have a free time, you know, reading your assignments when you're on the training table or um, you know, long bus rides, not just sleeping, trying to knock out a paper or something like that. So it really just takes time and energy and the will to, to try to succeed in both. And also there's some time it takes to get into the culture of a program. So when you came to Florida as a fifth-year guy, what was the process like of assimilating into the culture of Florida basketball? For sure. You know, I was a part of it on the opposite end of the spectrum at Charleston when, you know, I was a junior, sophomore, and we had a couple fifth-year transfers come in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because, you know, they have a drastic effect on the culture. They're only here for one year. You don't really know them very well to start the year. Right. Um, and kind of whatever attitude they have can really affect the team. So uh, we had some great fifth-year seniors who came in and helped us at Charleston. So I kind of wanted to be like them coming here where, you know, you're not rocking the boat and um, come in and try to fit in with the guys and I think that's gone really well. You know, they welcome me with open arms, and I feel super close to all the guys on the team. I think we're really a family and just trying to get together and win some games and send myself and the rest of the seniors out in a good way. We talked about getting into the culture of Florida basketball. Now, as far as the, the nuts and bolts of it, what's it been like transitioning your game from the CAA into the SEC? Yeah, definitely. I think there's, there's definitely a a transition period, especially for me because I came off an injury when I transferred. So mm -hmm. I tore my labrum and didn't really play the last conference part of the season at Charleston. So coming to the SEC, I think the speed of play was a little, uh, a little faster. Obviously, there's better athletes, I think. So I had to adjust not only that, but also coming back from shoulder surgery and just trying to get my rhythm back. And um, I think it took me a little bit, but uh, you know, I think our team is clicking pretty well now and just, you know, working every day to try to refine our craft and do what the coaches say. And I think uh, when the time comes, we'll be ready in the NCAA tournament. We were able to kind of have a good run there in the middle of the season and, um, you know, had a tough stretch here. But uh, we're back on track now having some good practices. When we talked about free throw shooting, you mentioned the math and science part of your brain. And obviously that's engaged by nuclear engineering. So I'm curious when you first got interested in that field. I think it stems back to high school. Honestly, I had some unbelievable high school teachers I have to give a shout out to Mrs. Mueller and Mr. Hendrick who are kind of <laughs> two of my science teachers there and really got me interested in science and math and then knew after I took a physics course with Mr. Hendrick that I wanted to do engineering physics based something when I went to college but at CFC they didn't actually have an engineering master's mm -hmm. or program so talked to the advisors there and they said physics is kind of the next best thing because a lot of the courses overlap and you can go right. into engineering grad school with the physics masters so that's what I did and then uh, took some nuclear physics classes at uh, CFC and really thought that was the most interesting niche I found so um, when I was looking at graduate schools I looked at mechanical and nuclear engineering and um, you know, Florida was at the top of the list, and it, it all worked out. I'm not sure what you can tell us about this, because it's probably, there's some government regulations <laughs> here, but can you tell us about Cheyenne Mountain? Can you explain Cheyenne Mountain? Because I don't even know enough about it to ask you a question. I, I was just told to ask you about Cheyenne Mountain and see what you've been cleared to say uh, by the government. 
Uh, I mean, I'm not anything high-level government <laughs> by any means, but, I mean, there's just a lot of military personnel around Cheyenne Mountain. Obviously, they had NORAD there, which was, mm-hmm. um, you know, the base that tracks everything that flies pretty much. Um, I don't know if they moved that to Peterson or not, but it was actually built into Cheyenne Mountain. So This is in Colorado Springs? In Colorado okay. Springs, right, pretty much in our back door. We're on, on the same mountain as, as NORAD is. And, you know, if you ride your bike up high enough on the mountain, there's all, all the fences and <laughs> government patrol and all that kind of stuff did you ever go inside? i did i was fortunate enough to actually be able to get a tour before they shut it down after 9-11 obviously mm. it kind of got more high level security there but it was really cool they have these huge blast doors and the whole thing is built on springs and they have their whole oh wow um, you know water supply and everything within norad just in case of you know a bomb fallout did that further your interest in engineering going through that and being able to see that up close? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I was pretty young at that age, but I think it was just a cool, a cool thing to see. You know, anytime you see modern marvel and technology like that, it's it's pretty interesting. You have a lot of other interests. That's very clear. Once basketball is over, what direction do you plan on taking things? Have you thought about that a lot? Um, yeah, obviously I hope my basketball career takes me far and, you know, ideally I make enough money playing basketball that I can buy a beach house and <laughs> spend the rest of my day surfing. And, That's the goal for everybody. And chilling right? on the beach, but, uh, <laughs> you know, in, if that doesn't work out, knock on wood, we'll, uh, definitely probably try to come back to Florida. Um, they were nice enough to say that they would pay for me to finish my master's whenever I you know, nice. got done playing basketball. So come back here, finish up my master's in nuclear engineering, and then, you know, get a real job. That's not playing basketball. <laughs> so is the track after that a PhD? Is it in academia? Is it in private? Uh, I'm not or, really interested in academia. Uh, not sure if I want a PhD either. It's just one of those things where I kind of have to see how far down the road it is. But definitely kind of want to finish my master's and then maybe go work in industry or government. And honestly, I'm not even sure if I want to you know, do engineering. I'd be happy to pursue a other job in sports. Or I just think the most important thing is that you find a job that's passionate to you or mm-hmm. you're passionate about. Um, so that way, you know, you wake up every morning, you don't have to go to work, you're going to do something that you enjoy. Earlier, we talked about Colorado Springs, you mentioned how many different things there are to do there. So outside of basketball and outside of school, can you talk about some of your very diverse and unique interests that I don't think many of your teammates share? Yeah, you know, we had a lot of outdoor activities, uh, something my friends and I used to do a lot at lunchtime during high school or, you know, in the winter, they have indoor climbing gyms. So we would go uh, rock climbing. Slack lining is really big there where you string up uh, webbing between two trees or two posts and uh, it kind of bends and sways. It's not tight like a tightrope, but it uh, bends and wobbles and you can kind of walk on it and mm-hmm. do tricks and um, really enjoyed that. And then I got pretty into music too. Uh, a bunch of group of my friends were in the band and then yeah, I quit that around junior year in high school just just got too busy with sports but um, picked up playing the guitar and uh, really enjoy that it's kind of a, a good break and calm from school and basketball so just playing playing guitar with my friends one of them played the piano another one played the drums and sax and guitars so we would kind of just have little jam nights where we'd go and mess around and play the blues and stuff like that so it was fun as you wrap things up here, this is the end of your Florida career, coming to the end of your Florida career. What memories do you take away overall and from Florida specifically? I just feel blessed to be able to play college basketball. You know, I think it's some of the best times in your life being able to travel and just spend time with your teams, all the inside jokes, all the laughs in the locker rooms, and being able to play on a big stage in front of, you know, 10, 20,000 screaming fans who, um, you know, want the Gators to win is just has just been phenomenal. So I just highly encourage everyone to pursue what you love to do, whether it's basketball, tennis, art. You know, if you love it, try as hard as you can to do that for as long as possible. You'll be on that big stage this weekend, and I know there's a lot at stake for this team. So you mentioned earlier getting back to doing what you guys are doing during that run. What are the keys to that? Because Coach White even said after the SEC tournament, 
we, we've lost our momentum. How do you get it back at this critical time when there's no other option? Definitely. You get it back in the practice gym, which is what we've been doing. Um, we kind of lost our edge a little bit, so we've been having some good practices, really coming together, um, coaching each other versus having the coaches having to call us out, um, just staying focused and disciplined, taking care of the ball, and um, you know, trusting each other, and I think we'll be fine. Well, Canyon, good luck in the tournament. Thank you so much for talking to us. Appreciate it. While you're furiously fumbling to finish your bracket before the deadline on Thursday afternoon, you might forget what a successful year it's been for the Gators, regardless of what happens next. To help prepare us for the tournament and give context to the accomplishments of this particular squad entering the big dance, we turn to Chris Harry and Scott Carter for some perspective. Well, I see them better than a year ago or the last two years because it is their first NCAA tournament bid since 2014, going back to... Orlando, with the circumstances are considerably different. Um, think about this. The 2014 team went back with uh, their number one in the country, number one team in the whole tournament field, mm-hmm. had four senior starters. I think I ran some numbers, and uh, the players that played in that game, they had 48 combined games of NCAA tournament experience wow. on that team. Huh. And the coaching staff, obviously, you had Billy Donovan, you had John Pelfrey, you had Matt McCall, you had 40-some games of experience with those guys. And uh, the only experience on this team is uh, five games from Casey Hill and one one game coaching from an assistant coach at Darius Nichols. So um, wow. different experience for a lot of these guys, different experience level overall for the team. Um, I think a lot of people look at what happened uh, with Vanderbilt mm-hmm. and obviously the last two back-to-back losses at Vanderbilt, both games in Nashville. I don't know how many times you can say it, and I don't know how to explain it, whether it's layman or people. People that understand basketball know that was a bad matchup for Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it starts with Luke Cornett, and it starts with a very disciplined uh, offense that executes, uh, values possessions, and knows how to play against Florida better than it knows how to play against anybody else. It's, it's, it's just the way it happened. Mm-hmm. Vanderbilt put Florida in favorable matchups and took advantage of them when, when they did that. And what it is is uh, Florida has some – defensive liabilities that Vanderbilt was able to go at, whether it was the inexperience of Keith Stone, lack of uh, depth in the post position. I mean, uh, Luke Cornett, the Gators were told over and over again going into that game, you know, when you're matched up with Luke Cornett, you got to front him, whether it was Canyon Barry or Keith Stone or Justin Land. And Luke Cornett invariably flipped it around and was able to prevent that from happening. And then there were three-pointers, open three-pointers, stuff like that, and stuff that drove Mike White crazy. And um, they didn't take a day off after the loss. Hmm. They got right back at practice. They had a meeting. They confronted some things um, in that meeting and came right out the next day and had a really, really good practice. Now they got to carry forward. Mike White said, it's great to be back in the tournament. It's great to be being in Orlando, Florida, by the way, 9-1 and one all time in when they play in the state of Florida in the NCAA tournament. That's all good, but you got to play better. Mm-hmm. And I thought about, you know, if Casey Hill makes that layup or if Kavaris Hayes grabs the rebound, puts it back at the buzzer, and the Gators win, they still didn't play a great game that day. Changes it, the conversation. It changes the conversation, change but it doesn't change what happened in right. the game uh, any more than, it, than if that had occurred, you know, in the game before at, at, at Memorial Stadium and mm-hmm. at Vandy. So there's some things they're going to have to do better to advance in this tournament defensively, and obviously they got to score more points. Since John Ibunu was injured, the Gators were averaging 80 points a game when he got injured, okay? They're averaging 68 a game now. Wow. So, and you don't think of that. Huh. You don't think of John Igbunu impacting the offense that much. And he wasn't scoring 12 points a game either. No, but he's it's not Will Chamberlain. He's everything. averaging eight right. points a game and averaging six, seven rebounds a game. Uh, what he does is he commands attention inside because mm-hmm. you just can't ignore a body like that because it's going to dunk on you if you leave it alone. So 
you move him out of the way, and, and now you don't have to pay so much attention to the interior, and that clogs things up for guards, and guards are, are Florida strength, um, attacking the basket and what have you. So they got to try to find some way to get back to that. Um, East Tennessee State, okay, they're a mid-major team. They're a high-scoring team, but they're playing in Orlando, and Florida's one of five teams in this field, Adam, that did not lose to a team outside the NCAA tournament. Hmm. Villanova, Louisville, UCLA, and Arizona being the others. That's one of the reasons Florida's going to Orlando. They're being rewarded for playing a good season, no bad losses. Florida fans may be frustrated with how the season ended. Florida players and coaches are frustrated with how the season ended. But they're back in March Madness, back at the party. And uh, Billy Dime used to say, you can't win it unless you're in it. It's a good saying about Billy D. It rings true every year. And every year it reminds me of uh, March Madness always – that's when the attention starts there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never saw it as much this season as after that. Lost to Vanderbilt the other night in Nashville. You got these people on Twitter coming at, you know, Mike White. And I'm thinking some fans out there who – I mean, you look at basketball. It's kind of like football where every game is like this signature right. event has some deep meaning. It's like Chris said, it's a bad matchup. Mike White, what, they're 24 and 8? That's right. And if they did fire him, you know what, Adam? He would have <laughs> two or three offers by in the morning. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, it's, a, it's just to poke a little fun at that. But that's what makes the NCAA tournament, in my opinion, one of the best events ever in sports because of it's really, it really is all about matchups. And it's hard to think, like, well, how did Florida lose to Vanderbilt three times? Mm-hmm. But then you look at some of the pundits talking about this Vanderbilt team entering the tournament. I think they have Northwestern. But everybody's talking about they're such a tough matchup for a lot of teams. Florida obviously experienced that firsthand. Who knows? They could go one and out. But at the same time, Cornette is such a different kind of animal. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if they can uh, make a little run. Yeah, especially when you, you got you don't have a lot of time to prepare for. Yeah. Luke Cornette is a different cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's the all-time uh, three-point shooter for a guy over seven feet in NCAA history. And they, and they shoot three-pointers better than anybody in the Southeastern Conference. So now they fell flat on their face in the quarterfinals, or excuse me, in the semifinals. Yeah, it was also their, their third game in three days. Mm-hmm. So and when you're a three-point shooting team, maybe that's going to catch up to them. So I, I'm not sitting here making excuses for them, but as far as Florida goes, it was a bad setup for them. And I, I think the Gators will be happy to see Luke Cornett moving on to wherever he's going to well, play next season. 37.5% of Florida's losses this year came to Vanderbilt. Yeah. That's kind of what you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Three of eight. So Florida's eight losses, Adam, were to Gonzaga, which is the number one seed, to Duke, which is the number two seed, to Florida State, which is the number three seed, mm-hmm. to Kentucky, which is the number two seed, to South Carolina, which is a seven, and to Vanderbilt, which is, uh, I believe, a nine. Against eight. Northwestern. Yeah. Yes. Which is one yes. of the better stories of the tournament. So, I mean, there's First time they've ever been in before yeah. Northwestern. That's yeah. right. They're, they're a really good story. Well, it's funny, too, the way that a season evolves and how the story changes because at the time Florida lost at home to Vanderbilt, it was considered a bad loss. But then Vanderbilt became a better team. They were 8 and 10, and I think right. they had lost four straight. And I think they got beat by at Missouri by 20. They did. So, yeah. so it's amazing how not only the narrative changes, mm-hmm. but Vanderbilt got better. Vanderbilt figured some things out about Vanderbilt, too. Uh, Florida, after the loss of Vanderbilt, they figured out some things about Florida. Now the script changed, losing Johnny Bunu. And I think they're still trying to figure some things out like that because 
you know, you look at those games since. Uh, I mean, they scored 57 at Mississippi State, they, 66 uh, at Kentucky, 62 in that tournament game. Only once have they gone over 80 since that after they were routinely going over 80. So they're still trying to figure some stuff out, and staff has till Thursday at 310 <laughs> to figure some things out at East Tennessee State. Now start crunching their numbers. They're nowhere near the conversation when you start putting them into RPI and strength of schedule and sure. what have you. I mean, they lost a game to Wofford. Um, they went to Mississippi State and won by four, lost, uh, I believe, by four at Tennessee. So when you start making those comparisons, what do they really matter? Because like Scott was saying, now people start paying attention to the Mm -hmm. NCAA tournament. The upsets that we're going to see this weekend, um, some next weekend, they're not that different from the ones that happened in November and December. The same kind of loss has happened, just nobody's watching it because they're too busy worrying about who's going to be in the college football playoff at the time. I did see your story on FloridaGators.com about East Tennessee State and a little bit more of the, the deep dive into them. They have a pretty cool list of uh, famous alumni. They do. I, with Kenny Chesney's on there. That's ah. funny. But now it's in Johnson City, Tennessee, home of Steve Spur. If you remember that, that 30 for 30 or the SEC story they did on, on Spur. Or the, was believer. It? the Believer. Yes. yes. Kenny Chesney was kind of the host of mm-hmm. that. I think he even produced it because I guess their roots run there. Uh, Timothy Busfield, the uh, the actor from Field of Dreams, who tells, Ray, you have to sell this farm. You have to sell this farm. I, I love my you're, – you're married to my sister. And then he says, Ray – don't sell this farm when all the ghosts start coming out of it or whatever. Does it does it show our age gap that I think of Timothy Busfield as the guy from Little Big League, the movie where the kid know manages is. the Minnesota Twins? Was he is he in that movie? Yeah, he's, he's like the star player. Wasn't in that he movie. also in Thirty Something, the TV show? Or do you oh, even know, know what that is? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm Have about you ever heard of that show. I'm about to be Thirty Something, but I don't know the show. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that show. Who else was on my list? Now I'm I'm drawing a. I'm sorry, I got you sidetracked in Timothy Busfield. Uh, uh, Mike Smith, defensive Mike coordinator Smith, for the Bucks, former Falcons former head coach. Falcons head coach, absolutely. Someone, her name is Bessie Cooper from, one, November of 2011 to December of 12. She was the oldest person in the world at 116 years old. Oh, yes. wow. Yes. In East Tennessee upset Arizona in the 92 tournament, I believe, huh. and in 89 threw a, one of the all-time scares into a one seed. It was a one-point uh, loss to uh, Oklahoma. They were up by, I think they were up by 17 in the first half on one seed Oklahoma. Wow. Had Stacy King, Mookie Blaylock, some of those guys on, on that team. But Oklahoma won the game 78-77, I believe. So we've talked a little bit about East Tennessee State, and Mike White and his staff and players can't do this, but we can. Because what the fans want to know is, well, then what's next? Can you give us a little bit of a look at the bracket around that if Florida advances and what that road could look like? Well, the immediate game would be uh, the winner of the fifth seed of Virginia, which I believe is 22-10, and 10, and then uh, North Carolina-Wilmington. I believe they're 27-5. and five. And it's funny, I, I, when the bracket was being unveiled on CBS, uh, as soon as the East Tennessee and mm-hmm. Florida matchup, I think Seth Davis first, he says, oh, well, there's my first up there right there. East Tennessee will be Florida. And they also pick UNC Wilmington to be Virginia. Wow. So, uh, you know, that's going to be a crazy uh, uh, 12 seed, 13 seed matchup uh, unless one of those teams holds its seed. And uh, Virginia is, a, is one of those teams that – they struggle to score sometimes. They, they got good players. London Parentis is a very good player. But a team that struggles to score is always in danger of losing an NCAA tournament game because ultimately someone's going to score more points than you. Mm-hmm. UNC Wilmington, high-scoring team, shoots threes or what have you. But I watched Mike White address his team the other day. He goes, guys, we're in a tournament now. He goes, the only one that matters is East Tennessee. Sure. And like you said, you and I are allowed to talk about it. But uh, if Florida were to um, survive this weekend, it would obviously be a, a huge story, be a huge achievement to be back in the Sweet 16 for first time in, in three years, especially with this group of guys, this bunch of inexperienced guys. But I think on the other side, waiting would be uh, Villanova, and uh, they're a pretty good team. 
regardless of what happens here, what I've noticed all season long in, in talking to players for this podcast and for various stories, there's been such an overall theme of we've got to get Florida back on the map, get Florida back where it belongs. So being a four seed, having the year that they've had in the second season under Mike White, in a lot of ways, they've accomplished that goal already no matter what happens, right? I mean, they're a four seed in the NCAA tournament. That's, right. that, that's pretty good. I mean, if you told – Mike White that before the scene started you told Gator fans they would have probably signed the contract for that I would mm-hmm. think and obviously building the program is bigger than that you got to recruit they have a top 10 recruiting class coming in you know now now they'll go out and whatever happens in this tournament use being back in the NCAA tournament as momentum mm-hmm. to build for the future I, I think everything's going in a in a really good place and the, I think um, the fact that you can play an NCAA tournament game in your home state two hours away usually worked out well for the Gators in the past and I don't know how it could have turned out any better, but at the same time, even with the way the the season kind of swooned at the end, I, I saw this coming. Just with the, there was no way they could move Gators out of Orlando. The, the metrics for them, Adam, were just too high mm-hmm. with relative to the uh, to the RPI, the strength of schedule, playing only ten home games all season. So this program has grown under Mike White in terms of dealing with some adversity, dealing with some unique circumstances late in the season, dealing with this, a, a major injury. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think things are in a good place. And, and uh, you look at where this team was this time last year, I think they were going to UNF to play in a NIT game. Mm-hmm. So um, quite the jump when you think about it. Last year they won, I think, 18 games in the regular season, 24 regular season this year, second in the SEC where they were picked to finish. So there were expectations and they met them possibly lost in all of the basketball craziness going on is the fact that spring football is upon us. I know Jim McElwain spoke this week, and what are we hearing out of spring practice so far, Scott? Well, uh, Adam, you know, they started the week before spring break. They got a couple of practices in, then they did break. And, you know, McElwain uh, talked this week about how a lot of the guys did stay in town and, you know, kind of got after it in the weight room and working out on their own. You know, a lot of guys did leave town. But it's uh, at this point, it's just really about getting into pads later this week and turning up the intensity and seeing them more at full speed. He did drop a little bit of news. Uh, Luke uh, Del Rio is undergoing another shoulder surgery this week hmm. on his throwing arm. You've got to remember right after the season, he had his left shoulder uh, operated on. And, you know, McElwain said this is a, a minor surgery, uh, whatever that means, uh, getting it cleaned out is essentially what he said. He didn't give a specific timetable, but he sounded optimistic in terms of having him back for fall. But just kind of another setback for Luke Del Rio, who I think now in retrospect, you know, he was really beat up, obviously, mm-hmm. after a midseason. And, uh, you know, to have two shoulder surgeries and some other injuries, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how his body responds to that. And, of course, thrown right back into a, another quarterback competition. Sure. So if that's what's going on with Del Rio, what's happening with the other young quarterbacks that a lot of people are expecting to see under center this year? You know, it's still Felipe Franks and Kyle Trask and uh, Kadarius Toney, the the three young guys who have never played in the game. Uh, you know, we kind of know more about Franks because uh, he's been talked about by the coaches more. You know, it, it looks like maybe he is kind of the leader in the clubhouse as they go through spring camp mm-hmm. here. But uh, McElwain did touch on Trask and uh, Tony. You know, in terms of Tony, he's a a little different look, obviously, than Trask and Franks, uh, who are more your typical drop-back passers. Mm -hmm. Tony's more of a wildcat quarterback, runs as well as he throws, and um, he says there's going to be some things that they're going to try with him in certain packages, certainly throughout the spring, to see if they can get something that he's comfortable with, the team's comfortable with, that maybe they can work on deeper in the fall and 
who knows, maybe see some of that come regular season time. And with Trask, uh, one thing they always said about Trask, they love his accuracy. They love his quick grasp and release. He's had some, I guess, issues with maybe fumbling some snaps here and there. And so they worked on that. And it's really with him, it's just more about getting more experience. I mean, we've talked about, I think, even on, on this show about how here's a guy who didn't even start in high school. Uh, he was a backup quarterback. And uh, here he is at University of Florida. <laughs> now projected as a guy who who knows how, how camp goes. He could be a quarterback in the future or of this season. So uh, there's a lot left to learn about him. I just know that he passes the eye test for the most part, mm-hmm. but I think he just has so much to learn. Well, hopefully we talk more about these young quarterbacks going forward, and hopefully next week we're doing a, a Sweet 16 preview. But for now, thank you guys as always. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Don't forget to check out the Rowdy Reptiles as they battle the Bucks in the NCAA tournament on Thursday afternoon at 3.10 on True TV and the Gator IMG Sports Network. And stay locked into FloridaGators.com for more info about the tournament. Until next time, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in O-Town.